0: There's something that a lot of stories that are considered classics all have in common. First of all, no story starts out as one. By definition, a classic story is one that earns a certain reputation. For being widely admired, enduring in its appeal, important in its place in the culture, and generally regarded with a kind of reverence. And that takes time for something like that to happen. And second of all, it's often true that there's a very long gap between the time of its release and its ascension to classic status. When The Great Gatsby was published in 1925, it was kind of a flop. It sold only half as well as Fitzgerald's earlier two novels, and the publisher still had unsold copies sitting in boxes 15 years later at the time of Fitzgerald's death. It would take decades for The Great Gatsby to rise to the status it enjoys now. Or, bringing things back into our wheelhouse, what about A Christmas Story? That movie was a modest success at best when it was released in 1983. Today it's considered a classic. You might be surprised to learn that one of the undisputed classics of Christmas movies – and movies in general – followed a similar trajectory. It's a Wonderful Life is inescapable during the holiday season, and maybe you've been assuming all these years that it's due to its strength as a story well told about an everyman who's given a chance to see the value he brings to the world a feel-good story with likable characters and universal themes. But that's only a small part of it. The rest has to do with the quirks of American copyright law, TV movie marathons, and a big-screen feature that found a second life on the small screen. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. You'd be forgiven for thinking that It's a Wonderful Life is so widely loved because it's a modern American take on A Christmas Carol, in which a troubled protagonist gets help from a spirit to appreciate the life he has. George Bailey is on the brink of suicide when Clarence Oddbody, an angel, is sent from heaven to
1: set him right. But that's just not the whole story. The story began as a short story called The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern. He had tried to get it published and didn't find any interest, so he put it in a Christmas card one year and sent it out, and that's where it got the attention of execs at RKO, who eventually got it to Frank Capra. That's Alonzo Duralde,
0: a frequent guest here on Christmas Past. He's the film reviews editor for The Wrap, as well as a podcaster and the author of the book Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. (music) So, it failed as a viable short story but succeeded as a viable movie idea. Which is hard to believe by today's standards. The whole plot is based on an attempted suicide. You don't see too many Christmas movies like that nowadays, but... Back in 1946, that kind of thing was actually normal.
1: There's a tendency for us to look back and think, "Oh, we used to be so innocent, we used to be so naive." But you have to remember, this is right on the heels of World War II. So, people had lost loved ones, people were following in the news on the radio, in the newspapers every day, stories about bombings and refugees, and you know, they we had kind of collectively gone through this tragedy. And so, you look at films of the time and they actually are a lot darker than often uh, a mainstream movie would be now Christmas in Connecticut opens with a U-boat sinking a U.S. ship and there's only two survivors and that's the beginning of a comedy this movie does kind of fit into Capra's Over in a lot of ways. You know, it's, it's not even his first film about a guy who attempts to commit suicide on Christmas Eve. That would be Meet John Doe with uh, Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. And even when the movie debuted in 1946, it was hardly what you'd call a success. For as much of a classic and sort of cornerstone of American cinema as we consider it now was not a big hit upon its release. The film was unsuccessful enough that it basically torpedoed Frank Capra's production company that he had formed after World War II called Liberty Films. I guess you could say it failed twice. First as a short story and then as a theatrical release.
0: But maybe that's too harsh an assessment of the movie. The common narrative you hear nowadays was that it was a total flop. It's more like there was just a lot of competition at the box office that year, with films like The Yearling, The Best Years of Our Lives, and The Razor's Edge all coming out. The reviews were mixed, and it wasn't an audience favorite. And, oddly,
1: it was released just five days before Christmas. But the Academy saw it in a different light. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture that year. Jimmy Stewart was nominated for Best Actor. It was actually nominated for five Academy Awards altogether, The movie is also
0: responsible for making a pretty important technological innovation in creating a new kind of movie snow. Up until then, the way to create snow in movies was to drop crushed up cornflakes that were painted white. I'm not making that up. And they made so much noise as they fell that the actors would have to go into a recording studio after filming to re-record their dialogue, which was then layered in during editing. Now, the story's emphasis on the little guy taking on the world with the help of his fellow little guys also earned it some attention
1: from a different kind of critic. The House Un American Activities Committee actually investigated It's a Wonderful Life and eventually decided that it wasn't subversive, but, you know, they, they'd had some inkling that it might be.
0: And over the years, the movie has seen remakes like the
1: 1970s version starring Marlo Thomas in the lead role. It was called It Happened One Christmas. It's a very odd film, though. I mean, it's a 1970s TV movie, so, you know, they don't get a lot of the period stuff right, which, who knows, maybe even It's a Wonderful Life got, you know, the 1920s high school dance wrong, but how would I? I know. Uh, but you can definitely watch this one and when they're doing either, either the flashbacks or what's supposed to be the contemporary 1940s part, it's like, mm, these hairdos are pretty 1970s. There's also been a colorized version of the original black and white.
0: But my favorite adaptation of all isn't even a movie. It's a radio drama from the Lux Radio Hour, which appeared in 1947 and includes the original cast from the film. And the radio adaptation is especially fitting for fans of old-time radio who will know that Lionel Barrymore, who plays the evil Mr. Potter, had famously played Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, adapted for radio. But let's back up a bit. How do we get from 1946, where the movie basically came and went without really finding its audience, to now, where the movie is nearly inescapable on television every year and many families have made it a tradition to watch?
1: There's nothing like repetition to create a tradition. (laughs) Exactly.
0: But, if it wasn't really popular to begin with, why was it aired so frequently on TV? The rights to the film had changed hands a number of times due to mergers and acquisitions. In the 1950s, National Telefilm Associates owned the rights to the film and the story it was based on. But those rights lapsed in 1974. It was a clerical error that prevented the copyright from being renewed, which meant that the movie was now
1: in the public domain. Because it was a public domain movie, and specifically because it was a Christmas movie, any TV station that wanted to air it at Christmas time could. Now the movie's back
0: under copyright protection, so don't get any bright ideas. But it's fair to say that much of the film's status as a holiday staple comes from TV stations taking advantage of free content in the early 1970s. And by the late 1970s and early 80s, the movie had become synonymous with Christmas television viewing. Now, speaking of the 1980s, which is scientifically proven to be the best decade for being a kid at Christmas, you know. Watching It's a Wonderful Life wasn't the only thing creating fond and lasting Christmas memories. Nope. It was a wonderful life for Mandy in Virginia, but for a different reason, as she shares in this Christmas memory.
2: One of my favorite Christmas memories happened in about 1983. I was five years old and apparently that year Santa's elves went on strike. So Santa had to outsource. He asked my dad if he could build a toy. My dad spent what felt like months in his workshop building the most beautiful dollhouse. But he kept telling me, don't get attached. This is not for you. I'm doing this for Santa, and he's going to give it to some other little girl. So I went to Santa that year, and when I sat on his lap, I told him, You don't have to make me a toy this year. Just give me the one my daddy's making. He said he's making it for you to give to some other little girl, but I really want that dollhouse. About three days before Christmas, the dollhouse disappeared. Apparently, Santa came and got it. I was heartbroken. But Christmas morning, there it was under the tree. I was so excited. I guess Santa knew exactly how much I wanted that dollhouse.
0: The countdown to Christmas is growing shorter, and that means we're running out of episodes. But let me assure you, there is still time for you to share a Christmas memory. And I'd love to share it with the rest of the Christmas Past family. It's super easy to do. Just record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com keep it to about a minute, make sure it's clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thank you so much to Alonzo Duralde and Mandy in Virginia, and as always, thank you for listening. I'm wishing you all the warmth and magic of the season, and I hope that your Christmas season has been wonderful so far. Be sure to join the conversation on social media, Look for Christmas Past on Twitter and Instagram, and do make sure to join the Facebook group because we're having Christmas fun all year round. And hey, if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover this show? You can tell a friend about it, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. These are quick and painless ways to show support, and they really do make a big difference. And if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I'll even send you a sticker to say thanks. You can write me for details at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see each other again very soon, and until then, may your days be merry and bright.